We're going to get started and we're going to have a word of prayer, but before we do, I want to read a passage of scripture for us. So I'm going to have you all stand and take a uh, little stretch here as I read the scripture for you and then you'll sit down. This is out of Galatians. It's not going to be on the screen for you this morning. It's a short passage of scripture, but if you have your Bibles and you want to turn to it, it's in Galatians chapter 2, starting in verse 20. This is written by the Apostle Paul. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, then Christ died for nothing. You can have a seat. Thanks. Let's pray for a minute together. God, we just thank you. You're so good to us. And as we sing songs about what you've done, as the way you've befriended us, how you rescue us, God, how you save us, it's, it's obvious when we take the right kind of perspective just how amazing you are. And in a moment um, where we are about to enter into your word and understand more of who you are, we're asking God that you readjust us. Tune us up, you know, so that we can see things the way we need to. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Scouts have done a great job this morning. Uh, the motto is to do your best. You guys have done really well this morning. So, well, you're not here anymore, I guess. Leaders, way to go, you know. <laughs> yeah. I love the Cub Scout program. I love uh, Scouts in general. I was a Scout myself. Uh, love that Scouts teaches values, teaches uh, character, gives you all sorts of skills that you wouldn't learn elsewhere. And it's also a pretty simple program. You know, it, it's straightforward. You get to the point, I don't mean simple and easy to run. Just ask Bob. But I mean simple as far as its mission and its focus, you know. Uh, Teach kids to do their best. Give them some skills, help them to succeed, that type of thing. It's, it's very good. And uh, we, I'm sure that in the Cub Pack they teach the scouts that, you know, you do everything you can, you do your best, that's the motto. But at the end of the day, when you've left it all on the floor, so to speak, and you've done everything you can, that's the best you can do, and you've got to let it go. And that's, that's what, we, uh, what we teach our kids, just do your best. But then we also wish that that's the way the world actually looked at us all the time, that, you know, they, they, if we were just graded on how much effort we put in as opposed to actually how successful it was, it would be really nice, wouldn't it be? If instead of being gauged on whether or not we were the best, we're gauged on whether we did our best, that'd be awesome. That'd be so good. But unfortunately, uh, when we look at each other, we oftentimes don't, don't extend that measure of grace to each other. You know who I would hate to be right now? A meteorologist. That's, yeah, yeah, or, or a, a school superintendent, yeah, there's tough jobs right now when you're calling school days, and um, on Wednesday, I think it was Wednesday, uh, there, it was supposed to be rain Wednesday morning, all the meteorologists were saying rain, well, I'm at the bus stop Wednesday morning, and there's only two other parents, usually there's like 25 other parents, and all sorts of kids, and this time, I see two other cars, kids all bundled up, one kid who had walked from his house, and then, and I'm just sitting here and I'm looking around and the one parent is just absolutely irate because there is snow dumping down and the parent's like, what is this? Like two weeks ago, you know, they called the night before and gave us a two hour delay and you wake up and there's like nothing. And this morning, put my kid on the bus and it's like a blizzard out here, you know? And I remember just thinking like, man, 
I would hate to be the superintendent. You know, like trying to make that call, it's so tough. You know, the superintendent doesn't have anything to gain by making a bad call in it. They're doing everything they can to do their best, so to speak, but with the information that they have. And it doesn't always work out. And sometimes we come up short and our best isn't the best because of whatever, you know. And so, but I'm sure that if all the superintendents got together and we're talking about the, the, those kind of situations, that they would have something to say about the meteorologists and how the meteorologists didn't ha- do their job the way they... But you know the meteorologists want to do their best. They're next on the line, you know, and they don't want to make too many bad calls and that type of thing. And, uh, you know, we all fall short, and it would be nice if the world extended its grace all the time. And if that's the way it was, like, you know, I gave it the good old college try, and that's what it is. But in general, that's not the way it works, because the expectations on each of us and the responsibilities on each of us continue to rise. And in the last few years, as money's been tight, the expectations have really gotten tight. Some of you, there's, some of you have lost jobs. Others of you have gained a whole bunch of jobs, but you're still getting paid the same, you know? And you're, you're, you're required to do so much more with so much less. And the expectation list grows. The to-do list grows bigger and bigger. And the ratio doesn't work out. And you can't knock out as many things as, as there are things being added on. And that goes not just for work. That goes for home life. It goes for church. It goes for scouts. It goes for whatever we're a part of. The, the intensity can increase. And as we grow and as we mature, the expectation on us increases, doesn't it? And it seems like the means by which to accomplish all of that and to do it right and to do it well, it's fleeting. It's hard. And we'll work really hard coming over here trying to get it done. You know, I know for me, I I have a to-do list of things that as our church continues to grow, the amount of stuff we have to do just keeps growing and growing. You know, and I'll go, all right, we're going to focus on this thing and we're going to do what we can to get it done. And, And, oh yeah, there's this thing. And every time you squeeze really hard trying to get the one thing done, it's like trying to get a balloon. You know, you squeeze it here and it just kind of comes out over here. And inevitably, it it moves somewhere. And you try to get it all under control, but something slips out. Eventually, you miss that email, you know, that you really needed to send out, and they didn't get it, and it's like, oh, man. And maybe in the morning, you tried to look your best, and you combed your hair and put on the deodorant, but you forgot to get the sleepy out of your eye, you know, whatever it is. There's always something where we fall short. That's, That's just the way it is. But do people naturally extend grace in those moments? No, if they didn't get the email, now their stuff's backed up. And we affect each other this way. So it's hard to extend people grace because other people's failures affect us. And so we learn in scouts and in other places, do your best and that's all you can do. But then when we walk out into life, people don't act that way and we don't treat each other that way. We're not extended grace and we don't easily extend grace going back the other way either. We work to try to keep up and to try to do what we can to make it all work. And then there is what we call stress. Stress on our calendar, stress in our bodies, stress in our psyche, stress in our relationships, and things don't work as well. All because we're trying so hard to do it right, and yet we're not able to quite do it the way that everyone expects. And grace isn't easy to find. So I want to talk this morning about two people in the scriptures who did their best, who worked hard to do their best. The first one is a guy named Saul. And you might know him uh, uh, by the name Paul. He was the Apostle Paul, the great missionary of the church who spread the gospel all around the world. In many ways, uh, we owe our own faith to the, to the work that Paul did. And uh, we, the, the fact that the news got to us probably is linked to Paul. He wrote the lion's share of the New Testament. 
And uh, we're really grateful for the fact that we have the scriptures. Before Paul was Paul, his name was Saul. And what we know from church history was Saul was a scrappy little guy. He, uh, he had uh, an interesting voice, apparently, and he also was a go-getter. He was like a little pit bull. That's what he was like. You know, he knew how to get it done. He knew how to maximize every ounce of his resources. And he was so focused and so driven, he knew how to get stuff done. He would have been, he was kind of like the, I'd say all American, but it wouldn't quite, you know, the all Hebrew, the all Israeli, he was on the all Israeli team, you know. And he, he was the guy who, uh, if it needed to get done, he got it done. If he needed the answer, he had the answer. He would have graduated top of his class, he would have been honor society. He would have, been a great, he would have made a great scout doing his best. He would have been the one in Sunday school answering all the questions right. He would have been the one on the team you wanted to have as the captain because he'd find a way to get it done. He would have been president of the debate club, so on and so forth. He was that guy, you know? And he didn't necessarily have all the resources at his hands. He just knew how to maximize every ounce of resources that he did have in order to accomplish things. While others talked, he got it done. You know, and that was Paul. That was Saul. And uh, there was another guy who was uh, basically a contemporary of his, uh, another young man who also did well, did his best. Um, you might have heard of him. His name's Jesus. And uh, Jesus was a guy who he worked pretty hard to do things right, it seemed like. But it would have been a whole lot different looking at Jesus. I doubt that he was the president of his debate club. I doubt that he was uh, in all the competition tearing it up. Chances are is that he actually looked pretty peculiar to people. We're told in the scriptures that there was nothing about him to attract us to him. He was kind of average guy. Now everyone knew he was a little unique and he had a different perspective on things. And maybe they even thought that it was wasted talent. A guy with this good of a brain, but he isn't trying to keep up with the Joneses. You know, and he could have done this, and he could have graduated here, and could. Have, but while Paul Saul was the one jumping up in class, having all the right answers, you probably get the picture that Jesus is in the back, just sitting there thinking about it all, not really concerned about getting the right answer, but really concerned about knowing. And then every now and then he'd just ask an honest question that would just stump all the teachers, and they'd be like, "What is it with this guy? You know, he is so odd. You know, but he he just kind of probably took life at a much slower pace." wasn't as driven as seemingly as Saul. And then he turned 30, and everything changed. He turned 30, and he went down to the Jordan River, and his cousin, John the Baptist, dips him in the water, and he comes up out of the water, and a dove comes down from the sky, and there's light, and there's a voice. And all of a sudden, God booms from heaven, validating his son, and saying, this is my son whom I'm well pleased. And at that point, everything changes. He starts to accomplish things that no one actually has ever accomplished before. He starts to heal people. And he has the power to do all sorts of spiritual things. And up till now, life has just kind of been steady pace for this guy. He's been learning. But all of a sudden, things begin to change. And those who weren't the winners, like Paul, like Saul, those who weren't the top of the class, those who didn't have a whole lot of confidence, they saw something in Jesus that they had yearned for. You see, they saw in him a level of teaching and a level of life, a way of life that actually they wanted to connect to and made a little more sense to them. And so pretty quickly, this huge crowd of people started following Jesus. 
And, of course, whenever there's a mass of people, the people who are in charge, they start to look. And they say, huh, what's going on over there? Where's the momentum for this thing? How's that power working? You know? And they start looking. And so the religious establishment all looked over at Jesus and they said, we're not sure about this guy. So they start asking questions. And the more they ask questions, the more skeptical they get. Because they start hearing that his theology, his interpretation of scriptures, seems to go against their own interpretations of scriptures. His values, they think, are going to undermine the very values upon which their society is built. As they read the Scriptures, they understand authority in a certain way, the awe and reverence of God. But the more they ask this guy, they're really starting to think that maybe he thinks that he's the Son of God, that he's actually God incarnate. And they're starting to say, man, if people start thinking that they can be God, if they start thinking you know, they can talk like this, then the reverence of God is lost, and the whole chain of authority and the whole system upon which we're built, it's going to be gone. We can't allow this anymore. And you know what happens. Eventually, Jesus is nailed to a Roman cross. And he dies. And three days later, he rises from the dead. And then he sees a number of people. And then he ascends into heaven. Of course, the religious establishment didn't believe it. And they said that there was, you know, uh, people had stolen the body and yada, yada, yada. This is the picture of this Jesus. But when Jesus dies and rises and goes back to be with his father, it doesn't end. It starts. And it's the beginning of this thing at that time that was called the way. The way was this group of people who followed Jesus. And they believed that what he taught was true. And they believed that the power that they had seen with him was worth following. And all the religious leaders decided that this was a major threat to real truth, to real values, to the real establishment. And so these people the way, who were following Jesus, it became important for the religious establishment to make sure that they were held in check. Enter our all-Israeli Saul. And Saul being the poster child for the religious establishment, Paul being the one who did his best, the one who accomplished it, the one who everyone else looked around and said he's doing it right. This is what happens with Saul. The beginning of chapter 8 in Acts is right after Stephen, the first martyr of the church, has just been killed. He's been stoned to death for following Jesus. Beginning of chapter 8, again, this won't be on the screen, verse 1, and Saul was there giving approval to his death. Here was Saul giving approval to his death. And on that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off men and women and he put them in prison. Now this doesn't paint a pretty picture of Saul, does it? I mean, if he's the go-getter, he's the accomplished one, he's the successful one, it doesn't seem, like this seems more like he's a murderer, doesn't it? But put it, Back in our context, I mean, this guy's like a Navy SEAL for the religious establishment. You know, he did what no one else was willing to do. He was the one who, he was hardcore. You know, everyone else talked about trying to uphold the values of God, but when this cult came along that was taking them the wrong direction, he was the one who didn't just talk, he got it done. 
Paul was the one who they could count on. Saul was the one they could count on. That when everyone else was scared what everyone would think and was scared, they could count on him to actually accomplish it. And you know, these religious leaders, they would have looked at Saul and been proud of him. His peers would have looked at him and said, he's zealous, he's doing great things for God. Have you heard this guy teach? Have you seen how well he goes after the Word of God? And have you seen how much he protects the values that we believe in? I mean, this is Saul. He's our boy. You know? And to us, when we read about what he did to the church, we, we look at it like, ah, but when they looked at it, it was like a guy who was actually doing his job well. And so something changes then for Saul. He gets papers from the religious leaders. And he heads up to Damascus in Syria. And he knows that up there there's going to be some Christians. These, they weren't called Christians yet necessarily. And we weren't, they weren't the church yet. This was just the way. But there was going to be people who follow the way up there. And when he finds them, he wants to bring them back down to Jerusalem. And he wants to put them in cuffs and put them in prison so that these people begin to learn. And everyone learns, like, this is a joke. This thing is a lie. This is evil. This is false teaching. This will lead us astray. So let's put them in prison. And on his way up to Damascus, something happens. Here it is in chapter 9. As he neared Damascus on his journey, this is verse 3 in chapter 9. As he neared Damascus on his journey... Suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, who you are persecuting. Now at this point, Paul could say, yeah, no kidding. I know who I'm persecuting. I know I'm trying to persecute Jesus. The only problem is, is that Saul thought that Jesus was dead. You know, and here Jesus is speaking to him. And Jesus, all of a sudden, who he thought was dead and who he thought this whole thing about him rising from the dead was a fabrication, now all of a sudden, Jesus is communicating to him. And he thought he was serving God by persecuting those who were the followers of Jesus. But now all of a sudden, Jesus booms from heaven and says, why are you persecuting me? Jesus continues in verse 6, Now get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind, and he did not eat or drink anything. So I find this pretty ironic, you know? Jesus makes him blind for three days, physically blind. And for three days, can you imagine, this kind of guy who's used to like, being able to do whatever he wants and get it all done... Now he can't see and he's completely helpless. And for three days he just has to sit there and think. And you know what he thought about? My guess is for three days he said, I might be physically blind now, but I'm realizing I've been blind my whole life. Everything just got turned upside down. I thought I was serving God. I thought Jesus was the, the enemy of that. All of a sudden, God speaks to me in the form of Jesus and tells me, you're persecuting me. And his whole world gets flipped upside down. All is debate training, all of his study of the scriptures, all of the things that he was trying to defend, all of this stuff, all of a sudden it got put to question. And he's like, what in the world is going on? And his world gets turned upside down. Now, Saul was not the only one who had a light shine on him and had a voice boom from heaven. There was the other person who did his best, right? And this is Jesus. Jesus not only did his best 
uh, when, you know, we see him in the baptism when the light shine, when, when uh, the dove comes on him and the voice booms. But then there's this other moment, the Mount of Transfiguration. You know about the Mount of Transfiguration? This is when Elijah and Moses show up from the past. They show up right here. Their, their spirits show up, and, and here they are on a mountain with Peter, James, John, and Jesus, and Moses and Elijah. And all of a sudden, Jesus is beginning to change right in front of them. He's taking on a spiritual state, and he's being like glorified right in front of them. And all of a sudden, Peter decides that he's going to be wise. And he says, let's build a temple for, for Moses and for Elijah and for you, and we'll build these three different temples, these shelters for you. And the voice booms from heaven. This is my son. Listen to him. And Moses and Elijah are humbled in the presence of Jesus. And Peter is broken. And what we realize in this moment is that as Saul had been talked to by God and said, what are you doing? This doesn't make any sense. In the same way, the father spoke to Jesus and said, well done, my son. This is my son whom I'm proud in. Listen to him. You see, over here was a lack of validation for Saul, who was the one who everyone else would have looked at and said he was doing a great job. And then there was this unique figure over here who maybe everyone else would have thought he was an underachiever with all that he had. And the voice booms from the sky and said, He is the one who is good. Listen to Him. Don't listen to the one who everyone wants to listen to. Listen to the one who I say is good. You see, Saul, his whole life, had done what everyone thought was good. Everyone looked at Saul and said, he's the good guy. He's the overachiever. He's the one getting it done. And they looked at Jesus entirely differently. But when the verdict came from the Father in heaven, he was good and he was not. Sometimes we can labor and strive and work and effort and do everything we can, and yet we can come to find out that we hit the wall and we realize that our best isn't good enough. It's the grace of God if we start to realize that our best isn't good enough. It's the grace of God if we get to a spot where we realize that everything we're striving for, it's meaningless. That's the grace of God that teaches us that. And it's the grace of God that turns our eyes from ourselves and begins to look toward the only one who is good, and that's Jesus. Saul learned this. He became Paul, became a great missionary of the church, and he accomplished all sorts of things. But he didn't accomplish them on his own power and his own strength anymore. He accomplished them in submission to God. Listen to what he says in Galatians or in Philippians chapter 3. This one will be on the screen for you if you want to read it. If anyone else thinks he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, that is obedience to the law and custom of the people, of the people of Israel, the chosen people of God, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, that is the scriptures, in regard to the scriptures of Pharisee, that means he knew these scriptures, that Old Testament, better than anyone else. As for zeal, as for getting it done, as for passion, as for accomplishment, persecuting the church. As for legalistic righteousness, as for dotting my I and crossing the T, as for reading my Bible and praying and caring for people around me and doing the right stuff, listen to what he says, faultless. Really? 
faultless. This is not Paul who's trying to puff himself up right now. This is a repentant Paul, years later, turning back and looking at who he was, and he's honestly telling us. He's like, legalistic righteousness? Honestly, you couldn't find anything on me. I had it nailed. No one had more reason to put confidence in themselves than me. That's what he says. And then this is what he says in verse 7. But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss. What is loss? That's a negative. That's, that's going the other way. It's not that it's, it's meaningless. It's, it goes the other way. This is actually a loss. This is something that, that doesn't help. It hurts for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish. That's trash, garbage, refuse, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, a righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. You see, this is the moment where Paul explains to us, man, I graduated top of my class. I, I, I did this stuff right over here. I, I thought I had it all together. The, the leaders approved of me. Everyone said I was doing a good job. And it comes to me, all of a sudden I realize that all this stuff is the stuff that's killing me. It's killing me. Because what that does is it feeds my pride and my self-confidence. And the more I look at myself and see how good I'm doing, the more I think I'm okay and the more I'm dependent on myself and the less I feel the desperate need for the one who's actually good, Jesus. And so all this stuff that I've accomplished, the trophies on my shelf, they're a loss, they're a negative, they're trash. They hurt me because they distract me from Jesus. My trophies get too shiny and I start to think I'm okay and I stop clinging to the one who I really need. We can only do good once we're in the presence of God, once we've learned to depend on God. That's what Paul understood. My only righteousness is the righteousness that comes through faith in God, trusting in Him. I have no righteousness on my own. I need to be a part of Him. And the problem, of course, is that we actually can't be with Him. Because anywhere that there's darkness, anywhere that there's light, darkness can't exist. Have you ever, take, if I took a flashlight right now, there's a shadow right here from this tree. And if I took out a flashlight and shined it in here and put a spotlight here, all of a sudden the shadow would be gone, right? There's no darkness where there's light. It's gone. In the Old Testament, if someone walked into the Holy of Holies, the, the, the sacred part of the temple where God's presence was, if they walked into that spot, they'd die. Why? Because there's sin and God is holy. And wherever there's holiness, there is no sin. We can't come into the presence of God. We need Him, but we can't come into His presence except for the one who did His best, Jesus. His best was good enough, not only for His Father, but it was good enough for Saul. It was good enough for you, and it was good enough for me. Now listen, when we strive in our lives, and when we work to achieve, and when we give it our all, there are templates in our world that are out there that we're supposed to emulate. There are the things that we're supposed to accomplish, the people we're supposed to look like. The world gauges us all and we gauge each other based on these things, based on how good we are with, with money, how good we are with our looks, how good we are with our success, all these different things. And there's people who are the benchmarks. Look at these people. Who do they represent? Who do they represent? If you want to look good, you've got to look like them. 
you know? And if you don't look like them, if you don't look like Brad and Angelina, then you've fallen short, you know? You come up short. And so if, you're trying to, if we're trying to put a sense of legitimacy in how good we look, well, if we're trying to do good with money, how about this guy? Who's that? Warren Buffett. How good are you with money? How good are you? <laughs> not that good. I guarantee you, you're not that good. Yeah, if you are, come talk to me after the service. I got some ideas. <laughs> How talented are you? Will your name live on in infamy like Michael Jordan? Are you that good? Are you that good? There's some, there's some teenager here who's going to shake their head. Yeah, I'm that good. Okay. How unique are you? We're called to be unique, set apart, different. Who's this? That's Lady Gaga. Yeah, I tried to find a picture of her that was appropriate for church. <laughs> And I realized I shouldn't be on the internet looking for pictures of Lady Gaga. That's a bad idea for a pastor. But this was the best one I could find, the most appropriate one. Are you more unique than Lady Gaga? Perhaps it's not a uniqueness that you're looking for. Perhaps you identify yourself because you're intelligent. Just how intelligent are you, honestly? Are you that intelligent? No, we're not. You know, it's the benchmark. It's what we try to accomplish. And I know, here's a great one. Here's a great one. I know so many guys who are tough guys, who is like, this is their identity. I'm a tough guy. I got my stuff together. I don't need all that. You know, I'm a tough guy. I just dare you to take one round with Muhammad Ali in his prime and tell me that you're tough. You know? I mean, it's like there's these benchmarks out there. You're popular. A lot of people know you. You know, you're... Try handling Oprah. They know your name more than they know Oprah, the most popular woman in the world. How about in your work, in your career? If you're going to be successful, who's the person you look at? Who's accomplished it? There's no one more successful than Bill Gates. There's no one more successful than him. Power, control, are you more powerful or more in control than this man? Honestly? And maybe you don't care about all that. I mean, honestly, maybe we don't care about how we look. We don't care about how intelligent we are. We don't care about how powerful we are. Maybe we just want to influence our world and do something good in our world. How much have you changed your world? You know, when you look at Martin Luther King and what he underwent in order to make change, how much have you changed your world? How much has our world changed because of this man? We're still trying to figure out the changes that have begun. But how much have you changed your world? And maybe you know that I can't even impact the world like him, so I just want to be good. Who's the benchmark of goodness? I would dare you to go to Calcutta and to spend your life taking care of the broken and the needy and the orphans and the widows and at the end of your life stand toe-to-toe with Mother Teresa and tell me that you're good. Saul said no one had more reasons to put confidence in the flesh than him. He said that under the guidance of the Holy Spirit while writing Scripture. I believe that Saul was a person who we'd put a picture up right here. Before he knew Jesus, we'd put a picture of him on the screen and we'd say he's the picture of achievement. He's the picture of success. He's the picture of drivenness. He's the picture of intelligence. He's the picture of influence. He's the picture of goodness. He's the picture of godliness. And he says, whatever was a gain to me, I count as loss. Because there is only one who is good. And I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. 
The life I live in the flesh, I now live by faith in the Son of God. There is only one who is good. There is only one to follow ourselves, to follow after. There is only one benchmark to look at. And all of us have fallen short. And all of us are in desperate need. And when we stand toe-to-toe with Jesus, we fall as John did, at his feet as though dead. And in that moment, we say, we need you, Jesus. And in that moment, the process begins of us actually becoming good. That's when it begins. When we stop depending on ourselves and start depending on him. My uh, youngest son, Colton, if you know him, he's, he's a lot of fun. Um, he's a little little troublemaker, and uh, he's also a lot of fun. And um, he's sensitive. He's got a great heart, um, a heart that needs to continually be redeemed like all of ours. But he's got a good little heart, and he's sensitive. And at night, he gets scared pretty easy. And he has this thing where we pray with the boys when we put them to bed each night. And we quote some scripture with them, and we'll say, What's Joshua in one nine? And they'll say together, Be strong and courageous. Be not afraid. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. And they'll say it together. And we're like, All right, so is he with you in your dreams tonight? Yes. Is he with you in the dark tonight? Yes. Is he with you when you sleep? Yes. All right. The angel of the Lord encampeth around those who fear him, and he delivers them. When you're scared, who will deliver you? Jesus will. All right. Great. He's with you. You're safe. You're protected. Mom and dad are next door, and Jesus is right here. You're good. Sleep easy, rest easy, go to bed. An hour later, Colton comes out. I'm, I'm afraid. <laughs> and he's like, I'm scared. It's dark. I'm scared. I'm like, what are you afraid of? Monsters. I'm like, monsters aren't real. Jesus is real. Yeah, I'm scared. And like, well, we already prayed for you. Like, Jesus heard us, you know? And so he's doing his part. You need to, you, you need to pray too, and you need to trust him. And, and he, said, he says, Mommy, I'm scareder than I can pray. <laughs> I love that line, I'm scareder than I can pray. And you know, that moment when he says, I'm scareder than I can pray, is the most basic reality that we have to come to terms with. What is the number one original spiritual discipline? Prayer. I mean, communication with God. It's the one basic thing that we can do spiritually, right? Pray. Reading Bible comes on top of that. Doing good things for people comes on top of that. But prayer, the most basic element of spiritual discipline. And he says that I'm afraid and you tell me that I should pray. But even my prayers aren't okay. I'm scareder than I can pray. My prayers aren't powerful enough in order to keep me from fear. And in that moment, we hit reality. That I'm doing my best, but it's falling short. And I need God. And my prayers don't cut it, and my efforts don't cut it, and my achievements don't cut it. Now I'm ready to depend on God, to die to self. And He comes, and He's there. And in His grace, He finds us where we're at. And we don't come to Jesus shiny like the pennies that that, that uh, Dave talked about. We come the tarnished pennies, and we say, are we good enough? And He says, I'll make you good enough. You know? I take care of it. And he reaches in and finds us where we are and he begins to rub away the stuff. But he doesn't come to make us good looking. He doesn't come to make us successful. He doesn't grab a hold of us in order to fulfill that dream that we're chasing. He comes and says, take my yoke upon you. You now carry my burden. But here's the good news. 
My yoke is easy. My burden is light. You have one job description. Come unto me, all of you who are weary and heavy laden. All of you who have stressed calendars. All of you who have strained relationships. All of you who struggle day in and day out. And I will give you rest. That's good news. That is good news. In a world where we are called to accomplish and when we are shot for not accomplishing it all the time, here he says, you can't do it. Come to me. I got you. That is a beautiful piece of news that we need to hold on to.